right, we finished up in verse 27, John chapter 11. So we will read from verse 28 to 46. So let's read the continuation of the story that we left off today with. Here's what it says. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. You have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the ability, the privilege to come back tonight. It's been a good day. And Father, we have had fellowship with your people. And we have heard your word read. And it's been a good day. And Father, I pray that tonight, that by the greatest teacher of all, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, that he would come and open our souls and our eyes and our ears, Lord, and give us understanding into the story that we have just heard. Lord, we are familiar with this story, but let us see it for what it really is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think context is important. I think you would agree with that. I think the thing that we have to realize is this. Jesus' earthly ministry is winding down. You can almost see the cross. It's there. It's 
on the horizon. It's close. And we have talked over and over and over again about his hour has not yet come, but it's coming. It's getting closer today than it was last week in this gospel account. And we see that this miracle that he's going to perform in the story of Lazarus is pointing to a greater resurrection than just raising Lazarus from the dead. It is a foreshadowing of the resurrection of himself just days away. I mean, we're very close. If you turn in your Bibles and you look at uh, chapter 12 of John, we see that it is Mary who anoints Jesus there. And then in chapter 12, verse 12, we see that Jesus enters Jerusalem on Good Friday. And then we find in chapter 13, he is in the upper room and it is the Lord's Supper. And then we find in chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and so forth that this is the scene of the Lord's Supper. Hours away from his arrest, we are getting close. And now of all the miracles and all the signs that Jesus has done in his ministry, I believe he ups the ante here. Because he is teaching them that he is the resurrection and the life. And he's going to raise Lazarus, but it's foreshadowing an even greater resurrection when he is raised from the dead and shows that he has ultimate power over death, hell, and the grave. And I believe this is why he saves this one to the time that he does. And we see that it is going to be this miracle that will cause these Jews to run back to the Pharisees and there will be a conspiracy to plot to kill Jesus. This is where it all begins. All the earthly ministry that he's done, all the far reaches of this area that he's went to, it is now zeroing in. He's coming back into Judea for these final days of his life. This is where we pick this story up. We know that where we left off today, Martha said that after Jesus had told her, her that her brother will rise again. She said, I know he'll rise on the last day, the resurrection on the last day. But he was talking about the here and now. Also, he's talking about the resurrection on the last day, the end of, of this age. But he's talking about something right in front of their face. This resurrection that he will do upon Lazarus as he is the resurrection and the life. And he says this to her that if anyone who believes will never die, this is eternal life. Our eternal life began in our regeneration and our salvation and is consummated in the eternal state. Jesus asked, do you believe this? She said, I believe it. And then verse 28 is where we pick up. When she had said this, this declaration that she believed that he was the Christ, the Messiah, she went away and called her sister Mary. Remember, Mary had stayed back. Martha had came to Christ. She goes back and she tells her sister, Mary, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And she heard this. She got up quickly and was coming to him. But Jesus had not yet made it into Bethany. He was still in the same place that he had talked to Martha. And this is where Mary finds him. And we have an interesting uh, bit of information here in verse 31, where it says the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. I think now's a good time. We can talk about some of this tradition that was uh, in, in view here at the time. There's an oral tradition that is found among the Jews at this time that 
if one had died and there was to be mourning of that dead person, that there was a requirement that was in this oral tradition of the Jews where you were to have a minimum of two flute players and one professional wailer or one professional mourner to mourn for the dead. So that was kind of the bare minimum is a couple of flute players and a mourner. That was somebody's job to go to these, to these uh, places that there was weeping and, and mourning over the death of their family or their loved ones. And here's this outsider who's just being paid to wail and mourn. What hypocrisy, what <laughs> not sincere mourning and weeping there is. And I think that will come back to, to be in view maybe here in the next few verses when we look at something else. But the fact that there's many people there tells us maybe some clues that maybe they were well-known, maybe they were a little bit more well-off, or maybe they were just very kind people that had a group of intimate friends to help them. But they see Mary get up. He tells, remember, Martha says it to her secretly, hey, the teacher's here, he's looking for you. And she gets up, doesn't make this announcement, and they all go to follow her because they think that maybe she's going to the tomb to weep there. And in verse 32, it says, When Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him the same thing her sister said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. As we mentioned today, there's a couple views here. Some will say, well, <clears throat> was she doubting Christ or blaming God and, and saying, well, how dare you not be here? If you'd have been here, you'd have fixed it. Perry and I were talking about this today. So many times we do that. Well, if God would have done this in my life or God would have done this in my life, he, he should have done this and it had been better. And the list goes on and on and on and on. He's a sovereign God. And his plan is perfect. And he owes us not one thing. What if he would have not given us grace? What if he would have not given us mercy? We could go down that road all day long. What He has given us is a gift. What He has done for us is more than we deserve. And everything that has come into our life by the sovereign hand of God has been ordained by a perfect God. I don't believe that she was saying, how dare you not be here? Again, like I mentioned today, I believe she's affirming her trust in Him affirming the power that she knows that he has. Lord, if you'd have been there, you could have done this. I believe that. You weren't. Okay. But if you were, I know you could have. In verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. I told you this morning that there would be a verse that we would have to come to to where the way we read it in the English does not do it justice to the context of this verse. Because when we are looking at this phrase or this part of the sentence where it says, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, when we hear that, what do you think about? He sees Mary weeping. He's moved to compassion. He's mourning. But that's not what the Greek comes into this meaning to be. The Greek word here means to snort like an angry horse, to snort or roar with rage, expresses strong indignation, deep feeling that is moved to sternly admonish. Some will say that another use of the word would be he was irate. 
Let me just say this. Again, I heard another situation this week where it was told to me that some will say that the King James Version, the English translation, takes priority over the original Greek texts and the manuscripts. Lord, help us all. What an idol we've made. What an idol we've made in a version of the Bible. We look to the Greek. That's where it was written. That's the original context. That's the original language. And when we look at this, this meaning, this word implies this. When Jesus sees Mary weeping, when he sees all that has come with her, he begins to be angry, snorting with this rage, if you will, this irritation. Why? What is he so angry about? Well, as I said, one view that has been espoused is that he sees some of these people that are, they're not there to really weep and mourn. They're not really there to console the family, but they're there for a job. And he sees that their hypocritical mourning is there. And he becomes angry and irate with them because he sees the hurt and the, the mourning that has truly come to these people that he loves. Some will say that he was angry at their lack of faith, that they didn't believe that he could raise them from the dead like he said. I'm not sure if I believe in that one as much. But there's another view that gets put into this of why he would have this strong indignation and this anger. And it goes something like this. Jesus sees Mary weeping. He sees the devastation that has come upon her life. He sees the heartache that is upon her. He sees the destructive effects that death has brought. He sees the pain associated with this. And he sees death as the greatest enemy that will face mankind. Remember today that it is sin that brought death into this world. And it is death that is the last enemy to be destroyed. And maybe he is face to face with this death and what it does and the effects and the heartache it has brought on humanity. And it brings him to rage and irate, uh, an irate state because he is face to face with the greatest enemy of mankind. He sees his friend weeping and he sees that this is brought about by the effects of sin and death. And here he is face to face with this enemy. Brings him to snort with anger and rage. As we see the effects that it has brought. And I told you the cross was close. And maybe, just maybe, as he's seen the effect of this enemy, maybe his mind goes to just the distant future when he will come face to face with this enemy on the cross. He's going to know the effects that it has. He's going to know the pain that it brings. He's going to know the separation from the Father that it brings when the Father brings the wrath upon him in our stead. This is the enemy that he's face to face with. This is the destruction. This is the effects of it. He sees what it's done. It's the enemy. And his hour is coming where he will face this enemy head on. And will conquer it on the cross when he willingly lays his life down for the sheep. And you see, when sin is removed, what happens in heaven in our eternal state? There's no more effects of sin. There's no more death. There's no more heartache. There's no more anything of that nature because we are 
removed from the presence of sin. And oh yes, like we talked about this morning, we have eternal life. It is through Him. So maybe that's the reason that this word is so strongly used here. In verse 34, it says, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And if you're like me and you wanted, as a kid, you're like, I want to memorize a Bible verse so I can get some points. Let me go to John eleven thirty-five. 35. I'll put in the work on that one. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. It's definitely not a verse that is without beauty, depth, and amazement. He sees the effects of this pain. He sees the effect of death upon the people that he loves. And there may have been people in the crowd there who were paid to be there to mourn and weep, but do you know that he was not paid to be there to mourn and weep because he sincerely felt the, the passion and the compassion and the love for these people. This speaks to his humanity, doesn't it? Where he's weeping. The eternal God. The one who created heaven and earth. The one who's before all things. The one who is our eternal God. He's weeping. Move with compassion upon those whom he loves. And what do we see here? I believe we see Jesus living out what the Holy Spirit would tell the Apostle Paul to record in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. When in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it says this. You remember in chapter 12 of Romans, that's the horizontal aspect of our lives, right? That the first 11 chapters are the vertical. They're the, the theological. They're the, all the beauty and the, all the things of salvation and justification and all those things, the doctrine of grace. And we come to chapter 12 and it says, as a result of this, here's how we live our lives. And in that chapter, here's what it says, that the mark of a Christian is that we're to, to have and to, to do. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It would be the Holy Spirit that would inspire the Apostle Paul to write that for us to hear. And you know what Jesus was doing? He was weeping with those who wept. He was moved. This eternal God was weeping with compassion and love for his friends. You know, that's the beauty about this church that I love so much. You know, I think there's something to be said about um, the beauty of a small, intimate church. There are churches that we find across America, the world, Marion, Harrisburg, there are churches that you would go into and you wouldn't know the person even went there. You wouldn't know their name. And I think it becomes very difficult when it's like that to have such a connection that when they weep, you want to weep too. You know what I mean? There's just something special and intimate about a church body that is so close. And you know what? I think that's the case here. If we get news on a prayer chain or we get news that someone is going through something and we know that those people are weeping and broken, do you know what I believe that everyone in this church is doing? They're weeping right along with them. 
And we see this example in Christ. He's weeping with those who weep. And we love to hear when God does good things for you because we want to rejoice when you rejoice as well. But for every time there's a season. He's weeping with them now. But he's going to rejoice with them in just a few verses because Lazarus is going to come back. What depth in that verse. Jesus wept. Shows his humanity. Shows that he practices what he preaches, if you will. And he's deeply moved with those he loves. Verse 36, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. He sees the love that is being portrayed out of him. Oh, but you know, there's always some. But some of them said, this is the, this is the guy that, ra- that healed the man that was blind, isn't it? If he loves Lazarus, could, this, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? Yes. That's the answer to that verse. Yes. He's omnipotent. He can do all things that he pleases and he desires. Do you know why he didn't? Because it was not in the purpose and the plan of God to heal him before he died. Simple as that. Remember, why is this event happening? So the glory of God may be displayed. It is for the glory of God. It's always been for the glory of God. It always will be for the glory of God. Yes, he could have done it. He can do all things. We look back in our life. Could he not have done that different in my life? Of course he could have. If he wanted to have. You know why he didn't? It wasn't the best. That's the short answer. He can do anything that he wants. And I'm so glad, as we talked about Wednesday, he doesn't listen to me when I put my two cents in on what he should do. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, here's that same word, that snorting with anger, indignation, irate, deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Again, now he's face to face with death. He's face to face with the the consequences of this enemy, and it brings him to this, uh, this emotion. It was a cave, and a stone was laying against it. Does that sound familiar to anybody? had to be a tomb, and it had to be a stone rolled in front of it. We even go back to Daniel. Remember that? And when we did our types and shadows in Daniel and the lion's den, that there was a stone that was rolled in front of the, the mouth of, the, of the, the opening there, and it had a seal that was set upon it, like it shows in the resurrection of Christ at his tomb. We know that Daniel and the lion's den was a type and shadow of the resurrection of Christ. But here we have a tomb and a stone rolled over it. Remember, This is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen in just a few days. He's the resurrection and the life. I love that little detail. Big detail, excuse me. And Jesus, after he'd been deeply moved, face to face with this enemy, he says, remove the stone. And then Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Decomposition has begun. Lazarus is dead. Are you sure you want to do that? You don't understand what it's going to smell like. It's going to, it's going to be bad. Look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, And what's interesting, 
parallel like this. We find the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, don't we? But it's not the only time we see the Son praying to the Father. John 17 is the most expansive and the most detailed. But here, the Son of God is going to turn to His Father and He's going to pray. And look what He prays. Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that You always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Why did Lazarus die? So the glory of God could be revealed, so that the faith of these people would be strengthened. That's what he said to his disciples. I'm thankful that I wasn't there, so that you would believe your faith would be strengthened. And now he's praying, and the reason that he's praying is so that the people around him can see that he's praying to the Father, sent from the Father, so when he does what he's getting ready to do, What's the logical response? That the Father would be praised. That Jesus would be shown to be from the Father and that He would be glorified. Can you imagine sitting there that day? Remember, Lazarus is still dead. They've just been weeping. They've been mourning. And Jesus now prays and says, God, I thank you, Father. You've heard me. You always hear me. But for these people, for these people, I said it so that they may believe you sent me. Remember, because the works that he does, what? They testify. They're a witness that he sent from the Father. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. We'll get into this a little bit here in in, in just a few minutes. But we always ask this question, why? Does he say, Lazarus, come forth? Well, there's a couple things. It's a personal, it's a personal calling. But you know what, he, what happens if he says, come forth? Every dead person in the graves comes forward. That's an effectual call. If he says, come forth, what a scene that would have been. He is the resurrection and the life. And any effectual call that he gives over death, it brings about the desired effect. So he had to be personal. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus said, let me stop. Let me ponder it. Let me consider it. I'll get back with you in just a few moments. And if I don't get back with you and make my decision today, come back in a few days. You know, that's not what happened. You know what happens when God effectually calls someone. They come. The man who had died came forth, bound, hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. The Bible sometimes is just so matter-of-fact, isn't it? And he came out of the grave. And they loosed him from his, his wrappings. And some believed. Do we see what just happened here? A man was dead for four days. And by the power of our God, by the sound of his voice, the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who has all power over death, 
by his words, brings this man who had began to stink because of the decomposition. He comes just walking out of the grave. How do you not believe if you're there that day? How do you see this and not believe? The same way it is with everyone who doesn't believe the gospel. If he doesn't open their eyes, if they're not his sheep, if they've not been appointed to eternal life, they will never believe. Even if a dead man gets called out of a tomb right in front of their eyes. That's unimaginable to our minds, isn't it? But that is what it takes for us as fallen rebel creatures to believe. That shows our inability without him. But this, his friend Lazarus, he loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. He had wept with them. But now it's time to rejoice because he's the resurrection. And Lazarus has been raised physically. He has been raised to life by the one who is the resurrection and the life. What do you think happened? What rejoicing that would have been that day as this man is raised from the dead. What a scene that this is. But we see what the other consequence was of this event. In verse 46, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done which is going to be leading next week until a conspiracy, a plot to kill Jesus. Oh, we're getting so close. He raised Lazarus, foreshadowing his death and the resurrection that is just days away. We're so close. But it would be at that resurrection, on the day of first fruits when he would truly show that he has power over death, power over the enemy, as he's raised from the dead in the resurrection. This speaks to the power of God, the glory of God, the works of, of, the, of the Son testifying that he's from the Father. It shows that this is all to the glory of God. But I want to just speak for the remaining minutes that we have about this call. I told you that this story, the point of this story is he's the resurrection and the life, foreshadowing the power that he has over death, hell, and the grave. That's the primary point in this story. He is the resurrection and the life. And we're going to see that in his resurrection. We're going to see the omnipotence of God in this story. All those things that we've mentioned. But you know what I also believe you see here? Is our story of how He rescued us. Look at this call. He's been dead four days. Do you know what we can say about Lazarus? He was dead. He was a dead man. That's who we are. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us we are dead in sin. We've asked this before. What can a dead man do? 
be dead. As Vody will say, dead men don't grab. Lazarus wasn't begging and pleading that Christ come and rescue him. He was dead. He wasn't reaching out for Christ. He was dead. He wasn't seeking Christ. He was dead. You know what he was dependent on? The Son of God coming to him. This is who we are. We are dead in sin. And if Christ does not come to us, then we are going to remain dead in sin. If Christ would have come to Lazarus' tomb and called him out, do you know what Lazarus would have been? Dead. He wouldn't have been raised from the dead physically here. This is how we are. We are dead in sin. We don't seek him. We don't grab for him. We don't run after him in our fallen state. We are dead. We are helpless and we have no hope within ourselves. That's what he tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. This call came to a dead man. And if you're a Christian, if he called you, you were dead too. That's your state when he called you. And we mentioned that this call was personal, wasn't it? Lazarus. I think it's so ironic and so beautiful how we just read in John chapter 10, my sheep know my name. I know their name. Uh, they know my voice and I call them by their name. It's a personal thing. Remember, if you are a sheep, if you are the elect, he's written your name in the land's book of life before the world was. It's an intimate thing. It's a personal thing. That's what John 10 tells us. I call my sheep by name. And what happens? They come. And here we come to this tomb. And he says, Lazarus, you and I were dead. And if he's called you, guess what he did? He came to you and called you personally. There's no sweeter words than to have your name spoken by the good shepherd as he calls you to himself. He didn't call everyone here. How unfair is that? How many other families maybe were around and saw this and thought, well, my loved one's dead too. Why don't you bring them back to life? Because God calls who He desires. He does what He desires. He's sovereign in all of His activities. And it was His prerogative to call personally Lazarus this day. The call was to a dead man. The call is personal as it is by name. And the call is effectual. Lazarus came out. Again, this is what we read in John chapter 10, that when he calls his sheep personally and intimately by name, what do they do? They come. When God effectually calls something, it produces the effect that it was intended to do. When he calls light into our hearts and he calls uh, uh, life into our souls, that is an effectual call. And when he called you, you came to him because that call is effectual. And look at the result of this calling. Look at the result of this calling of a dead man. This personal, intimate, effectual call of a dead man. What does it do? It brings a dead man to life. That's the story of the gospel. We've said it before, but the story of the gospel is not that you were sick and now you feel a little bit better not that you were bad and now you're kind of good you're not good none of us are good without christ but the story of the gospel is this that we were dead 
and now we're alive. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. You are dead, but now he has made you alive. That's what happens when he comes to you and I who are dead in sin. He personally calls his sheep by name. They come. It's effectual. And the result of that is we are brought from death to life. And then we see here that when Lazarus came out, he was bound, wasn't he? In these grave linens and on his hands and his feet and his face. And what does Jesus say? Loose him. Unbind him. You see, before he saves us, we are enslaved, we are in bondage, we are bound to the things of the devil. But when he calls us by name, when he brings us to life, he sets us free. We are no longer bound. We are no longer held by death. We have eternal life. And even though we may die physically, like we said today, it is only a transition because our eternal life has began. And it is consummated when we take our final breath and when we are raised on the last day in our eternal state, that's when that is consummated. But it has begun. That's why he tells them that even though you die physically, you never die. The result of this is Lazarus is raised physically. And Lazarus is going to die again physically, but he's not going to die spiritually. And that's the case with us. He raises us spiritually. And we may die physically, but we never die. The result of this calling is dead men. Dead in sin, made alive to Christ and given eternal life forevermore. You see, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And his power is shown over death as he's raised Lazarus from the dead, brought him to life. And that same power is shown in his resurrection physically. But I want you to stop and think about yourself tonight. If you're a Christian, then we see the scene that has played out in our lives. Do you remember that day? Do you remember the day that you called upon Christ? He was working on your heart before you did that. He was bringing your heart to life. He was bringing regeneration to your soul. And then by his gospel, he begins to call you. And you come. It's an effectual call. And we who are once dead in sin are alive in Christ. We've been set free. And death does not have that hold on us anymore because we have eternal life. I see the story of Lazarus. I see the glory of God, the foreshadowing of his resurrection. But can you relate to being Lazarus? There's nothing that I could have done just laying there. And one day, by mercy and grace, that he comes to the tomb of my, my soul that's dead in sin. And he called my name. Sean. Come forth. Come on. He called me out of darkness into light. He called me into his kingdom. He comes to the tomb of my soul and says, let there be life. And he raised me.
because in him is life. He has raised us to this resurrection spiritually. And the hope we have is that one day he raises us physically and bodily on the last day. This is quite the story. The miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead is one that should leave us in awe of the power of our God who has power over li- of life and power over death. And Christ would shortly after this story face the enemy of death head on, on the cross, when He would willingly lay down His life for the sheep, suffer the wrath of the Father. He would then be placed in a tomb. There would be a stone rolled over it. And when we look at this resurrection of Lazarus, it should bring us to this awe. But it doesn't even come close to the resurrection we're going to read about in a few chapters. And you know what's so amazing about this resurrection? Is the one who has raised Lazarus from the dead is the same one who's going to raise himself from the dead and show his power over death and the enemy. Isn't that crazy? We're just a couple days away from the one who raises Lazarus having and doing it, raising himself because he is the resurrection and the life. This is our awesome God. And all who believe, you've been raised spiritually. That's the resurrection, spiritually. But let us look to the future. We don't know when that'll be. We do know it'll be the last day. And the hope we have is that we know that Christ was raised from the dead. The first fruits. And if He's raised you spiritually, then you go home tonight and you lay your head down in the middle of this world that's crazy and chaotic. And you know this, that you will be resurrected with Him on the last day. That's the hope that you have. And how is this possible? How are you raised spiritually? Through belief in Christ who is the resurrection and the life. And how are you raised on the last day bodily? Because He's the first fruits, and we join in that resurrection. So how are we raised spiritually? How are we raised physically? The answer is through Christ. Because He is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. Lord, we thank You for Your truths that we have found in this story. Lord, let us not be here tonight and we hear the story about how you brought Lazarus from being dead to to being alive and it just quickly passes over us the amazement of that. Lord, the power that you have over death Lord, we know that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. 
And Lord, we know that that will be absolute and it will be guaranteed because you have all power. Lord, we thank you for what we found in this story. It points to you. It points to your glory. It points to you being sent from the Father. It points to so much. It points to the resurrection that will take place when the Son of Man is raised on the third day. It points to the hope that we have in our resurrection through our union with Him. And Father, it points to our spiritual resurrection we have through our faith in Christ and the hope that we have as we're resurrected with Him on the last day. Lord, we're also thankful that You came to our souls. You came to the tombs of our dead souls as we were hopeless. And You called us into, into light. And You raised us from death to life. And Lord, that brought us eternal life. And that brought us to being set free. And Lord, we thank You for this life that You've given us, this eternal life. And we're looking forward to that day when we are removed from the presence of sin from the last enemy, which is death. And we will live with you forever and ever because you have given us this free gift of eternal life. Lord, we thank you. We give you all the glory and we declare that you are the resurrection and the life. Amen.